Well, my first guest this morning is widely regarded as the world's greatest living novelist. He's been nominated three times for the prestigious Booker Prize, one of which was for his novel The Blackwater Lightship. Set in 1990s Ireland when AIDS was still a terminal diagnosis, it's the story of a broken family and the cost of caring for each other. Well, now a stage adaptation of The Blackwater Lightship will have its world premiere at this year's Dublin Theatre Festival. Colm Tobin, good morning to you. Good morning, Miriam. How are you? Great. So nice to chat to you. Look, we're speaking to you this morning. You're in L.A., but I know you also live part of your time in New York. You've got a place here in Dublin and you go back to Wexford. Where do you consider home right now? Um, the inside of my head, I'm afraid, you know, <laughs> that, that I, I take I really just need a biro and some paper and the inside of my head and I'm at home. But I think when someone that someone of my age, really, home is where your CDs are. <laughs> and, uh, you can't carry your CDs with you. And uh, I'm too old for all that new machinery. So uh, home is in Dublin then. Oh, that's great. Well, look, you're a professor also, of course, in the Department of English and Comparative Literature in Columbia, New York. Are you enjoying teaching? I was talking to Frank McGuinness actually last Sunday and he loved his students in UCD. Do you love teaching? Yes, I do. I, I only teach one semester a year. When I go back in January, it will just be one seminar a week and the one seminar is on Ulysses. And so we get about, it's about, they're very small classes at Columbia. So they're about um, maybe 18 undergraduates at the most. And we go through Ulysses in one semester and um for me, it's incredibly enjoyable. It's it's a great new sort of hobby, just going through the Joyce book and really studying it. And I put a lot of work preparation into it. So, yeah, I get a lot out of it. I mean, I've been doing it for, for a good number of years now. And, you know, I'm my own best student in a way because I, I'm the one who learns most. Do you find you can write, say, as easily in L.A. or New York or does it not matter to you? It really doesn't matter. You know, I have whatever I'm doing in my head. And it's just a question of getting it done. I think you can fetishize the whole business of, oh, I need to be in a certain room or I need, you know, I need silence or I need, I, I, I even can, can leave the door open. I mean, it doesn't bother me, whatever noise is going on. I'm, I'm, I just concentrate. And, and my, my main thing is to try and try and finish it, you know, just try and get whatever chapter or section you're doing finished and um, stop, stop making excuses. Is it correct that your boyfriend says it's like being with someone in a trance when you're writing, that you're completely locked up in the book? Yeah, but it's much worse than that because sometimes <laughs> he, says, um, he says, what are you thinking about? And of course, the only thing I can answer is the truth. I, I'm thinking about my novel. So it isn't just the trance, it's just not when you're working. Some of that, you know, it must look like a trance when something new occurs to me. I'm sort of sitting there and... Um, yeah, the trance is quite a, it's quite a common thing, the trance. <laughs> so look, it's over 20 years, Colm, since the publication of The Blackwater Lightship. It's a magnificent novel. How are you feeling now about it being adapted for the stage? Um, I suppose um, when we've been through the pandemic so recently, the whole idea of illness, the whole idea of an illness that comes under, you know, very, that sort of threatens and that that comes as a name first and then comes as something real. This happened with, say, tuberculosis in Ireland in the say, 30s, 40s, 50s. And it certainly happened with AIDS in, in Ireland and sort of all, all over the world, really, in the 80s and early 90s. So that, you know, it, it is it, with the pandemic, it, it is something sort of that's still present. But also, of course, the novel is about a family. And, and, and the, I suppose the idea 
other sort of family difficulties sort of emerging and becoming more dramatic under certain pressures is something that I think everyone will recognise. Was it difficult to write that book at the time, Colm? Did you find it emotionally quite draining to write it? Yes, I did, because I had to imagine it and I had to see it in full. And I mean, one of the problems is that a lot of people um, in Ireland in those years, say in the, the novel is set in 1993, had not actually come out to their families. In other words, mm. that, that they were gay in Dublin and that when they went back to wherever they were from, they were certainly, you know, they, they were they were they were treated as though they were straight. And in the novel, there's a one moment where one of the guys describes trying to go home to tell them the problem he had is that he had gone up to the Arsenukteron to be met by Mary Robinson and he had been filmed and he was going to be on the six o'clock news and he'd been interviewed by Charlie Bird, but he hadn't told his family. So he had to rush down to Clonmel, where he was from, and tell them. But he couldn't tell them. And his father eventually said to him, are you after joining the IRA? In other words, in other words that they couldn't think what it was. And then, of course, he says to his friends, you know, in my family, my, my siblings haven't told my parents that they're heterosexual. In other words, it was mm-hmm. a, one of those families. It just didn't talk about sex. So, I, I mean, I had to imagine those sort of dramas and um, that sort of, um, it, it was it was AIDS before the therapies came so that, um, you know, it really, really was a most serious matter. And yeah, it was a difficult, it was a really difficult book to write because you, you didn't want to exaggerate the emotion, but at the same time, the emotion is enormous and the sort of drama is is really serious. It's almost like a different world now. Do you find that 2022, when you think back to those early 90s and obviously the terror that people felt either coming out or certainly if they had AIDS trying to explain to their family, do you feel like it is almost a different planet now we live on? Yeah, it it is in some way. But the other way is that people, um, a lot of people who live, say, in Dublin or live in London have replaced their family with their friends. And that tension between who is your real family? Where would you go in a time of crisis? Would you go home? If you went home, what is home? And home in this case for Declan is his grandmother's house rather than his mother's house. And that brings with it its own tensions, its own jealousies, its own strangenesses. So all those questions, what is home? Where would you go in a crisis? Who is your family? What role do your friends play in your life? Have you abandoned your family? What, what does all that mean? I mean, all that is still with us. But yes, you're absolutely right that the climate in Ireland and elsewhere has really changed. I mean, in, in those years, it would have been unimaginable, the idea of gay marriage. Mm. I, I mean, it wasn't even on the list of demands. And yet it came and it almost seemed natural. And um, yes, of course, at, at in the in the time before the therapies came for HIV for AIDS, it was unimaginable again that there was going to be a cure or that something was going to be found that would um, actually stop the disease. So, so yeah, it, um, it, it's in some ways it's an historical it's an historical novel now, and in other ways it's not. And it's great it's now going on the stage because, look, I'm talking to you now, you're in L.A. How involved have you been in the stage production? And are you nervous about this wonderful novel being staged? Um, I took the same position as I took with the movie Brooklyn, which was that once I signed the contract, (laughs) David Horan was going to take over. He was going to, in the same way as Nick Hornby did with Brooklyn. 
David Horan was going to do with this. In other words, that the Blackwater Lightship was going to be now in his hands. And my job, as with Nick Hornby, was to keep away, keep my nose <laughs> out of the whole thing. You know, there's nothing worse than the author calling up the adapter and indeed the director to say, look, I have an idea. There's something I need you to change. I, you, you just can't do that. It, it doesn't work for, for, the, for the producer or the adapter, and it certainly doesn't work for you. My job was to hand it over and to leave it to him. Is that difficult to do? No. In other words, it, it, the, the alternative is so awful <laughs> to become, you know, that you've, that you've signed the contract and yet you can't let it go. So you do just have to have to really decide. Either, either you want this or you don't. But if you want it, don't start coming in to um, cause grief to everyone saying, I know what this book is really about and you don't. I mean, that would just be not. And you mentioned Brooklyn there, and I know you're working on a sequel to that hugely successful book. Why have you decided to do that? Was it something you always intended to do, Colin, even when you'd written the original? I promised I wouldn't do it. I hate sequels. And I think they're, <laughs> I think they're a mistake always, except for Godfather 2. And um, I just was walking along the street and I got an idea, which would have been an idea for an, a novel on its own in any case. But it was an opening few pages that I, that I, that I realised. It's 25 years later and I got an opening few pages that I think were, I thought were dramatic enough and stood alone enough to justify doing the book. So I'm now nearly finished. Is that a really exciting moment when an idea like that, when you're walking along, comes to you and you think, wow, I have a sequel here? John McGarren used to say that he hoped he didn't have another idea until after Christmas. <laughs> um, <laughs> meaning that, no, you don't. You realise, oh my God, here it comes again. This is, you know, two years or three years of, of actually just hoping to finish. Just, I just, you know, when you're halfway through, you realise this is another year. It could be more than another year. Even now that I'm coming towards the end, I, I, I haven't read the whole book yet myself and I could read it and decide, no, no, this is not working. I need, it needs another something else. So, um, no, it's, um, it's a slight element of your heart sinking of just going <laughs> on, oh, here we go again. And something of a new departure, I gather you've also written an opera, which is going to be part of this year's Wexford Opera Festival. Yeah, I've been working for it. That's, been, that's a good long project. I, I was approached by an Italian composer called Alberto Caruso, to do a, a libretto for my novel, The Master. And this time I decided I would do it myself, that it was a new venture. I had not written a libretto before. I was interested in the form. I liked him. I liked his work. And we began to work together. And eventually we, we went and we workshopped the opera we'd written in Boulder in Colorado. I don't know if you've been there, but it was just after they had legalized marijuana. Mm -hmm. And everywhere you went, people were so stoned. It, it was dangerous walking along the street <laughs> because people would bump into you. They were so stoned. People kept saying to me, I know the best place, meaning the best place to buy marijuana. I kept saying, no, no, I, I want to, <laughs> I'm trying to write an opera. You leave me alone. <laughs> but, um, but in any case, um, Rosetta Pucci, who had just taken over at the Wexford Opera Festival, saw this opera, you know, there's a version on YouTube that we did in Colorado, and she wanted to do it. And she whispered, this time last year, she whispered to me across, there were, there were other people in the company, and she was whispering to me, who do, you, who do you want to direct it? And I said, Conor Hanratty. And she just nodded. She didn't say yes or no, but she nodded. And so I have Conor Hanratty to do it. Wow. I mean, it's... Look, I haven't I haven't seen what they've done yet. It's a much bigger cast than we had in Colorado. 
and Alberto is coming over to, he's going, because these three, are, there are three sort of operas in a smaller space in Wexford, and this is one of ours, and it's, so it's going to be piano accompaniment. I mean, it's going to have full costumes and lights and all that, but piano, and Alberto is coming over to play the piano, but he's there yeah. at the moment, all there, they've all started work at the moment, and um, he's coming over to do that. So it's going to be really exciting to see that, and um I'll be in, I think, I think I'll be in the last week of rehearsal if they let me in the room. But if they don't want me in the room, <laughs> got to be able to say, fine, I'm not go home because it's it's now their work and not mine. Oh, it's lovely and so exciting that it is in your native county of Wexford, of course. From, you know, your first novel, The South, you've always used that beautiful stretch of the Wexford coast, in a sense, when you write. To what extent does that landscape still fire your creative imagination? Oh, I mean, with this new novel, everything important that happens in this new novel happens on that stretch of Westward Coast. In other words, if something, if someone has to meet someone, they'll meet in Ballyconnor or Carrickloe. And so, yeah, it's um, it, it has, I, I just know it. And w- once I start imagining it, I can know how do you get down the cliff from the, you know, to the mm. strand. If you go north, what do you see? If you go south, what do you see? It's just a place I know. I think it's something a lot of writers do, if you think of a lot of Irish writers, putting a flag up, not over a nation or a state, but over a particular small stretch of landscape, whether it be urban or rural. And so this is mine. Earlier this year, of course, you became laureate for Irish fiction. Is that primarily honorary as a role or or what does it involve? No, it's, I mean, it's partly honorary, but it's also work. I I write a blog every month, which is on the Arts Council website. Um, I do an art of reading book club every month, which is also, you know, on the, uh, on the Arts Council website. And I will do a lecture every year, which I've just been working on my lecture for this year now. So, I mean, I mean, I see it, you know, the art of reading is, is the sort of theme for the three years. And I, and I just see it as a way of sort of fermenting or adding to a sort of community of readers and and um, tr- trying to get good books and get people um, involved in not only reading them, but also coming together to discuss them. We did one recently in, in the library. We partnered with the libraries and we did one recently in Ballymun, um, you know, in person, where we, we all read a Kate O'Brien novel, The Anteroom. You know, we go on to do a lot of new Irish fiction by younger writers as well. So, no, it's, um, I mean, it's work. It's something that you, that you, that uh, that I really wanted to get involved in. It's incredible now when you think about it, Colm, how successful you are as a writer that you once said, you know, you grew up in Enniscorthy and I think quoting you, you said at school you sometimes felt stupid. Isn't that extraordinary? <laughs> yeah, there were two fellows in the class and we were always being attacked for just not listening. The other guy is Eamon Wall, who's now a famous poet. He's wow. a professor also in America. <laughs> and both of us were dreaming our way into becoming professors and poets and writers. <laughs> um, but the Christian brothers didn't take well to that. They just didn't view it as a sitting, looking out the window, realizing you haven't been listening at all to the algebra. That that is never, that, that was not really recognized at the time as a sort of a dutiful activity. Wow. And of course, I know your dad when you died when you were very young. He was a teacher, though, and was part of the pressure in school column that you're meant to be the teacher's son. So you're meant to be first and clever uh, yeah. and smart. Uh, yeah, you're, you're, the teacher's son is meant to be smart and <laughs> not only smart, but a fellow who does his homework and re- really, really comes in with everything ready. And uh, yeah, yeah, they didn't um, they didn't appreciate me at all in that respect. I mean, it just wasn't uh, just uh, it, it, the phrase that they could use very easily about you. And if there's anyone listening who who's, who's young, who's who's. Ah, he's no good. 
<laughs> I is no good. And, uh, I are no good. And, um, you know, you just sit there realizing, well, I must be no good. You know? Do you think that did impact on you? I mean, no, now you've been no, so... I didn't believe I didn't believe it for a moment. I thought they were talking absolute nonsense. <laughs> good for you. Where did you get that confidence so young then? To know that from they home. were wrong. Well, I suppose I, I got it from home as well. You know, that you were, they, were, they would never say that about you at home. They'd just say, could you just wake up and do something? You know, get, get, get your <laughs> own work done. Start listening to the Christian brother. Your mum, of course, I mean, your dad was a teacher, but your mum, she loved books. Was that because she herself, she had to leave school because like you, her own dad had died when she was very young? Yeah, that my mother um, left school at 14 and uh, the nuns in, thought it was awful because she was very good in school. And so she, yeah, she be, she really educated herself and she had an extraordinary reverence for books. And I suppose she couldn't understand why someone like me giving, who had all the chances, wouldn't take them. But um, all her life, she would find new writers. And um, I mean, she had a lot of opinions about novels, you know, and uh, I think she thought mine were too slow. She loved Saul Bellow. She loved smart novels. She loved fast (laughs) movies. She said, oh, it's too slow. And so um, a lot of Irish writing didn't suit her because it was too slow. And she liked a lot of American writing because it was smart and fast. and, And of course, she knew a lot of poetry. When you think back now, Colm, I mean, your mom obviously was influenced by the death of her own dad when she was very young. I think you were about 12 when your dad died. How profound an experience when you look back now as an older man, do you think the loss of your dad was? I think it's really profound and I think it affects you all your life. And the, the, I think the bad part of it is that it affects you in ways that you don't understand and that people talk about grief and people talk about getting over things. Well, it's very difficult for a 12-year-old to put any emotion, even to, to learn to feel an emotion that is so profound is very, very hard. It took me a long time. Certainly, I was in, well into my 40s when I began to work with Ivor Brown, the psychiatrist. And uh, I, mean, I mean, what Ivor was saying was that there, there are things that happen to you that are so traumatic that you don't feel them, you don't experience them, you, you block them, you stop them, you do anything not to have them. And, and I think that that affects people in, in ways that are very difficult to understand. And, and I think we're watching something at the moment, for example, anyone who's watching the recent royal stuff mm-hmm. and watching the feud going on, whatever it is, between um, William and Harry, realize, of course, the death of the mother, of course, this is what they're doing to each other because they're, they're, this, this, this arises from the sort of grief that even in a play like Hamlet, you realise, why is Hamlet doing all the things he's doing? Because his father died and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't know who he is. He doesn't know what to feel. So he feels many different things at different times. So we, we have so many examples of the ways in which grief causes emotional confusion, that it doesn't come to resolution, that it really does sort of poison the system if it's not dealt with. And I think anyone who's been through loss in early life knows this. So do you feel resolution can be reached, Column, as in your case, through therapy? And, and the notion that people say, oh, you'll get over it. I mean, is that misplaced advice? No, I don't think resolution can be reached. Um, I think recognition can be reached. In, in other words, that, that you can see what it is you, you were feeling or you went through. You, you, can, you, you can attempt to live through the experience. You, you can get to know it and understand it. 
but it doesn't go away. Anyone who's been through loss, even loss of a sibling, loss of a parent, loss of, obviously loss of a child, but any loss like that that came when it wasn't expected is something that you don't easily recover. It's too easy to talk about recovering from or getting resolution or getting closure even. Mm. That the things that it, it, it remains a wound. The question that the what you need to do is to see it, to understand it, to know when it's coming, to actually recognize it. So interesting, Colm. Listen, this year I was thinking, it also marks 40 years since I think you became editor of McGill. When you put <laughs> that journalist hat on now, what do you make of Ireland now when you come home? I mean, what kind of shape do you think we're in right now? I think that um, there's, I mean, I mean, I remember, you know, the time when the, like the IRA campaign was at its worst and when people were, you know, it was so difficult, you know, Charlie Hawley was trying to get legislation through to, to actually, that you had to get a, what, to go to a doctor and then go to a chemist to get a condom. Mm. And this was being overseen by the Catholic Church. In other words, that those sort of powers were there. Some of them were invisible and some of them were so real and, and so present. So, so, so the fact that those two things, that, that, that sort of insidious power of the Catholic Church in, in insinuating its way into legislation and the IRA campaign, that the fact that those two things have gone have created a clearing in Ireland. But I think it might be my age, but um, there was a time when every time <laughs> Charlie Hoy or Gareth Fitzgerald or some of the people who came after them spoke, it would really annoy me the tone they would use, the pomposity or the hypocrisy or something. I don't feel that anymore about Michal Martin, Leo Bradker or Eamon Ryan. I, I, so it must be age. It <laughs> must be that maybe it's all the same, but I just have become more tolerant, more easygoing. So I don't have the same constant state of rage that I used to be in. <laughs> Listen, it's a good few years since your cancer diagnosis. I assume you're doing very well. Yeah, I have to go into one of those machines every six months and seemingly I'd come out the other end without any sign of anything. So so it's good. That's That's been four years now. Yeah. Which is brilliant news. I mean, I think you said before, I could be wrong, that you didn't come out the other side, you know, once you recovered and got better with a renewed appreciation for life. How did you feel? <laughs> I am. I, um, look, it was so boring and it was so much anguish and there was so much just lying on the sofa, staring straight ahead. And I began to do a campaign called Get Me Through the Next Five Minutes. God, I don't believe. God, I don't. God, I don't believe in you. But could you get me through the next five minutes? Just, just, just do. The, let's just do the next five, and we'll work out what to do after that when the five minutes are up. And then you could go through the day in this state of anguish. Like it was. Anyone has been through chemo knows it. Like you get into it. They put. But I felt that I didn't learn. I look. I think if you need cancer to to teach you to appreciate life, that there's something wrong with you all along. But. Um, I just, as soon as I possibly could, I tried to go back to what I've been doing before, which is writing books, which is teaching, which is just getting on with things. And um, it wasn't as though I made some some big, big change in my life or learned to appreciate sunshine. I liked sunshine before. <laughs> but it did encourage you and get you to write poetry, didn't it? Because you found reading and writing tricky with the chemo, but you you wrote poetry. Yeah, the poetry, I came a bit late to poetry. I published my first book when I was, what, 66. It was the pandemic and the aftermath of the cancer together got me going. It was one thing that I, I suppose I'd always wanted to do. I had done as a teenager and I went back to it in the silence of the pandemic. 
with with yeah with a sort of renewed idea that if I didn't do it now, don't if you don't have your first poetry book out by sixty six, <laughs> when? So um, yeah, so the, so that's um, that's something new I did. Yeah, you certainly did. I mean, you once described yourself as lazy, which is a bit of a joke. You've got this opera coming out. You've got that poetry collection. You work as the laureate. You have another book in the offing. You, you lecture. I mean, what did you mean when you said once that you think you're lazy? There was um, someone told me something about Gay Byrne that when he was working with with sort of young researchers, that he had a way of turning in the office to them and just saying, what are you doing now? What are you doing now? And of course, it's the most awful question because you're usually doing nothing now. <laughs> and, and I think it's a wonderful question to ask yourself. Um, okay. what, what are you doing now? And you know, the answer to usually is, are you in bed still? Are you <laughs> laying around the house? Are you sitting there? Doing nothing. Are you checking your emails when you already know there are no email, new emails? Are you Googling something you don't need to know about? And so the answer is, what are you doing now? (laughs) Get on with your book, get on with your book. And so, yeah, it's a constant battle pushing yourself. Great question from Gay. Listen, you're obviously (laughs) keeping your mind really active. Do you still play tennis? I mean, are you as physically fit as ever? Yeah, I'm playing a lot of tennis. I'm I'm as bad as I ever was. I it's a funny thing. I haven't changed my my style, which was bad and ungainly, since I was about twelve. I'm playing exactly the same game, and Americans find it odd because I've never had coaching. Where Americans are so overcoached, <laughs> every shot is, is it's it's like they it's like it's manicured their game. Whereas my game is rough and it's just not very good. But I don't hit the ball out anymore, and I'll run after anything. Yeah, I get a lot of pleasure from it. Sounds like you're loving your life. As, as we come to the close of this interview column, do you feel quite blessed in your life at this moment or how do you feel? Um, in Wexford, in St. Peter's College, if you went into a room every afternoon for a week or two and listened to the opera, you could then get down to the dress rehearsal, get out of the boarding school and down into the dress rehearsal. And it was called the Pearl Fishers that year. I think it was 1971. And... Uh, it was really had a huge effect on me. I thought it was the most magnificent thing just to see the opera, the lighting, the costumes and the and the course of singing. And the idea that after all these years, if someone had said to me that night, going back up to getting a bag of chips and walking back up to St. Peter's, getting into you know the, your cubicle, you're going to have an opera on in this festival in the future. I would have said, stop it. Oh. Well, it's wonderful news, Colin, that you are going to. Do you find that quite emotional? I do, yeah, I do. It's great. You deserve it. (laughs) Thank you. Well, look, Tom, as ever, I love chatting with you and your world premiere of the Blackwater Lightship. It's going to be seen at Dublin's Gaiety Theatre as part of the Dublin Theatre Festival. It's running from September the 27th to October the 2nd. Everyone should go. And your opera, The Master, is going to be part of the Wexford Opera Festival. And the details for that are in wexfordopera.com. Stay being brilliant, Colm. Thanks for chatting to me this morning. Thank you. Thank you very much, Marion. Thank you. Tweet at Miriam O'Call. Mm. Lots of lovely reaction there to Colm Toby and just bring you a little bit. Hi, Miriam. I'm really enjoying the interview with Colm. His marvellous book, The Master, is one of my absolute favourite books. That's from Jen. Nicklin Dunboyne says, Miriam, I took part with my book club in one of the Art of Reading events with Colm on Zoom. He was so very generous with his time and very insightful about Hugo Hamilton's book, The Pages. It was a great initiative. I'll bring in one more. Martina says, Miriam, really enjoying the interview with Colm, a wonderful writer and a great Wexford man. My late dear husband, a true Enniscorthy man, was taught by Colm 
Colm's dad and spoke so fondly of him as a teacher. So looking forward to his next masterpiece.